0: Gold Star family members, many of them elderly, packed the East Room of the White House on September 27th for the event, seated shoulder-to-shoulder and not wearing masks. In weather today in Washington, D.C., it is currently 68 degrees and sunny, and in New York City, 68 degrees and sunny. From WPFW in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Sue Goodwin. A public service!
1: All right, you are listening to Your Rights at Work. Chris Garlock here with Ed Smith. This is all about your rights on the job, the ones you have, the ones you don't have, the ones you wish you had. 202-588-0893 is how you get your questions answered. And Ed Smith, how are you on this fine Thursday?
2: Good afternoon, Chris. Lovely weather here in D.C., and I know you're still up in New York, but we can still do a radio show together. It's good to yeah, see Yeah, we
1: can. Yeah, we can. Rochester, New York. Beautiful upstate Rochester, New York. Rochester. My dad. My dad is recovering well. We actually had him out of the house, took some steps, uh, so that new hip is working well. And I got to just, again, uh, folks, of course, know Ed works with the nurses down there in D.C., and a big shout out to all the healthcare professionals out there. I saw a whole mess of them yesterday when I was in uh, uh, doing some work with my dad, and I tell you what, they could not have been uh, nicer or more helpful, and uh, just... uh God love you. Really appreciate and it. Nurses are probably proud members of Nislin, the New York State Nurses
2: Association, I would think. Uh,
1: I think you're right, actually. I think you're right. We had a whole bunch of different folks there. Just the handoff from, from one expert to another. It was just it was just a thing of beauty, i tell you. It's really amazing that, uh, what, less than two weeks after getting a, a hip replacement, the guy is up and walking around and and feeling no pain. All right, now we are uh, because uh, one ed is not enough. Even when that ed is Ed Smith, we're going to go <laughs> for the we're going to go for the two ed situation today. Two Eds uh, are better than one. Two Eds. Are, <laughs> I set you up for that perfectly, didn't I? Yes, you did. <laughs> Ed Lazier is going to join us in a few minutes, and uh, we're going to talk about um, what's going on with the, the D.C. City Council race. Ed, of course, a long, long-time friend of, of working people throughout the metro area. Uh, and then we got a special treat for you at the half. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Marx, as in Carl, at the arcade, as in video games. What do uh Karl Marx and video games and video game workers have to do with each other we're going to visit with dr jamie woodcock i'm kind of in uh, jumping across the pond lately ed smith we kind of really got a global show
2: yeah going on here yeah that should be a very interesting segment and i think we have someone join who's joined us as a special surprise guest if i'm not special mistaken.
1: surprise special surprise but always more than welcome my colleague your friend none other david Stephen. david so good to have you here brother Hey guys, how's it going? Well, uh, as soon as I knew that we we're having uh, Ed Lazier on, we we're going to be talking politics. I was like, we got to get David on because you know, <laughs> you—I uh, tell you what—you did the hero's work of sitting through the, that uh, that endorsement <laughs> that endorsement process. And uh, in fact, we're going to be talking about that, uh, letting folks know just what is all is involved in that. But before hey, we get into way, that, let yes. me
2: jump in. Let me jump please in here. Please do, please Real jump. Quick. John. It's been quite some time since the three of us have been on the air together, but I remember some uh, some of the shows when Dave came in with us is, uh, back when he was wearing a different labor hat, and I thought that they were some of the most enjoyable shows we've had. So it's good to see you again, Dave.
3: Well, I'm glad to be here, Ed, uh, and, and I'm excited. Uh, you know, that in this election season, uh, we I mean, we've got a lot on the line. Of course, we know what's, what's at stake federally, but here locally in D.C., we have a great chance to get some really uh, progressive, pro-worker, pro-labor people uh, in, in office. And I'm really excited about making sure that they get elected. So, um, you know, the, these next 26 days are going to be uh, uh, full of, 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 of um, challenges, uh, but we're going get, to get to the finish line and we're going to win. are
1: going to win. That's what I like to hear. Yeah, our, Speaking of, of some of those challenges, I was uh, just amazed uh, once again to to see that the numbers of the unemployment insurance one point three million unemployment insurance claims last week. Uh, and and the reason I bring that up, guys, is because um, and you heard that in the news at the top. I think there are some very serious questions and and, and about. Uh, what's going on with the president i mean in terms of of uh i heard, I heard that he tweeted over a hundred times yesterday which you know i, I tweet but i mean a hundred times i don't even know how you'd have time to do anything else that's 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 uh that's an amazing record but seriously i mean uh at the same you know he blew up the talks uh with, with you know over stimulus uh, just, you know, called up Steve Mnookin and, and, and it was like, uh, yeah, stop talking to Nancy. Uh, and this is the same week that 1.3 million people, uh, you know, filed for unemployment. Uh, according to the Economic Policy Institute, our friends at EPR, we have them on regularly. There are the, the market, the, the job market is down uh, at least 12 million. That's the official number, 12 million jobs from where we would have been. That's, that's 12 million. I mean, think about that, right? And then you've got the knock-on effects of that, right? So you have 12 million jobs and no relief in sight. And, and David, you and I know, because, you know, we talk with our colleagues who work for the claimant advocacy program, uh, you know, on, on a regular basis, you know, these, these are folks who are, are running out of money. It means they can't pay their rent. They can't buy groceries. They can't, you know, it's nuts, uh to think that you know we're just going to wait until after the election to have those talks although i do see that they kind of i don't even know what, what do they call it what, david the term of art uh, you know david of course did uh, did a couple of years up there on the on the hill They're walking it back which to me is 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 <laughs> what it, tell us what that really means um, you're talking about what Trump did, as as far as like trying to
3: piecemeal everything. Yeah, well, that, yeah, I, I think the the term would be walking it back. Yeah, that that's exactly that what it is. I don't think that there's a complicated way to describe that. Um, he's he's been incredibly irresponsible, but this is what happens when you have someone uh in office and and unfortunately as president, uh, that has no idea what it's like to be uh an everyday American. Uh, you know these these are real people with real issues that. Have to pay rent, have to feed their families, have to provide for their household, uh, and to just say that until you re-elect me, you get nothing. Uh, what happens between now and November third? Uh, you know, in the in the, the, the unlikely event that he does get reelected, even so, we've got a whole month. Do people not eat for a month? Uh you know, do do people are people not able to take care of themselves? It's a real problem. Um and and you know, it's 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 just sad to think that that this person at, at at the head of our government who is leading these these talks really just has no idea what he's doing. He's never had any idea what he was doing.
1: So here's what the EPI pointed out. I I, I just love EPI because they really break it down. I mean, this is some of the things that that would be affected, right? No additional housing and nutrition assistance. No COVID-related health and safety measures for workers. Ed, I'm sure you're gonna to wanna to weigh in on that. No aid to the postal service during this critical time. And what we're talking about is the postal service, which is already slammed, right? Is gonna be even more slammed with all of those people voting like me. I'm voting by mail, absolutely. Um, no, And uh, no additional support for virus testing, for tracing, for isolation measures, Virus treatment again, Ed. I want to come back and talk to you about this. Uh, So these are just some of the sort of the top of the line things. So that you know, when you just call up and say, "Oh, stop talking to Nancy because I'm upset" or "I had a bad, you know, drug reaction," I don't know, you know. Uh, But Ed, talk about because I know you're on the front lines with your healthcare workers. You know what what is going on here?
2: Well, you know, it's unfortunate that uh, they that the talks have been pulled. It was unfortunate that the Republican. Senate did not work with um, the Congress to uh, earlier in this summer. Uh, as we keep going on every day, uh, it's this pandemic is not going away anytime soon. But you know, quite frankly, it's not just the federal government. I mean, we're, I'm sure you've seen in the news recently about schools reopening in D.C., and we've got a Democratic mayor who's running as a progressive, quote unquote. Um, who has basically ignored teachers, ignored nurses, ignored principals, our concerns about the safety of reopening schools. And that includes the issues you were just mentioning, Chris, the, the, the supplies, the the uh, PPEs, the the conditions of the buildings, that's all up in the air. And uh, so I definitely blame the, the federal leadership uh, coming out of the administration and coming out of the Senate but we've got to um you know we've got to uh, work uh locally to to help the situation as well and i don't see that happening um so that's my
1: two cents for now anyway okay let me share one more thing uh, while we're uh, while we're lining up on getting ed ed lazier uh on online uh and and uh, david i'll just uh you know <laughs> You and I just went through some. Some uh, we, we we always get these resolutions that come up at the uh, at the labor council. This is one that I really like, though. This is not a labor council one. This is one uh, we you'll see it when I read. It. So, uh, whereas Kroger's essential workers have been on the front lines of this global pandemic, placing themselves and their families at risk in order to keep these stores operating. Therefore, be it resolved that the West Virginia Mountain Party hereby unequivocally supports the rights of these workers to engage in civil disobedience that directly impacts their employees' ability to continue to profit off their labor. So mm-hmm. I've never heard of the West Virginia Mountain Party, but I'm taking my hat off to them.
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's pretty cool. That's
1: that, that's definitely pretty cool. Good, good for them. So, hey, yeah. folks. 202-588-0893, 202-588-0893 if you want to weigh in on any of the things that we're talking about. If you have any questions about your rights on the job, Ed Smith is ready, willing, and able. In fact, come to think, it, we got two lawyers on the show because David's is a lawyer as well, so give us your best shot. Now, David Stephen, uh, let me start with you on, without getting too, too deep into the woods, but take us real quick through... How does somebody like a Ed Lazier wind up? And I see he has last uh, as of uh, as of just before showtime. Anyway, he has 17 labor endorsements. Okay. How, do, how, how does somebody wind up with, uh, with actually with the Metro Council's la- uh, labor endorsements? Since that's what you worked on. So Ed has a very, very long
3: history with the labor movement, which is one of the most exciting things about his candidacy. Uh, he's no stranger to many of the labor unions around around the region, and of course, he's a um, a wonk when it comes to uh, the budget and economics uh, for for district government. So when you're able to merge those two things about how to be pro worker while still uh, being responsible about the budget uh, here for the district, it makes him an incredibly capable and 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 uh, really exciting candidate for the for uh the the dc council because we know that he will be able to get things done without hitting that 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 dead end that we always say where they say well how do we pay for it or you know is this going to exhaust the budget um because ed knows knows his stuff uh and he knows it much better uh than than many of us lay people do so um it, it was really exciting uh to be able to endorse him uh you know when we got his questionnaire the um the extent to which he answered his questions, uh, the the knowledge that he's able to uh, bring into the conversation is just a great thing. Uh, and we so we, it, it should surprise no one that the labor community uh, in general has gotten behind him because he's no stranger to us. He's been a long advocate for us, uh, and we we certainly believe that he will continue to do that. Uh, as, as we move forward, and hopefully once we get him onto the council in January.
1: So I want to I want to clarify a couple of things just so folks understand. So the labor council sure. uh, is the organization that some 200 locals uh, belong to. Oh, wow. union locals belong to, and that includes you know things like the teachers, various government locals, uh, David's old local, uh, transit workers, local 689, each of whom uh, can and often do. Uh, indoors and, and, uh, not to, you know, air out any dirty laundry because we know this is the way the politics goes. But there are times when, say, 689 will endorse somebody, uh, you know, local 689 will endorse somebody, but maybe other locals. I mean, we've literally had some, uh, mayors, uh, races where we've had, you know, union locals on, uh, both sides of it. And, and then, of course, the council, which is made up of all the different locals has got to make a decision. So again, without getting too deep into the woods, how do you balance that? You know, you come out of a local, so you guys could just look at transit issues when you were at 689. And if a candidate mm-hmm. was terrible on your education, well, maybe you didn't like that, but you really had to take care your bread was buttered on, on transportation issues. but well, now you're working at the council and you gotta look at, you know, all those issues.
3: Well, yeah, it, it's 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 about um, you know, collectively who the council believes is good for the labor movement as a whole. Uh, you know, who's going to protect. Uh, collective bargaining and, and the right to organize and and workers' safety on the job. Those big picture issues, you know, and and, and of course, when you have locals and they have their specific issues and their their specific needs, uh, there there may be a parting of ways. But uh, as, as a whole, the council looks at who's going to be there for a labor, uh, and we make a collective decision with everyone. So everyone has a stake. Everybody has a vote. And everyone is gets to influence that process, and so it was very uh, gratifying to see that Ed was able to be Ed Lazier. That is uh, was able to be that that um, that candidate of consensus, Uh, because as a community, we truly, truly believe that he will be uh, the best candidate that will move a pro worker, pro labor agenda, uh, and his history proves that. And we're excited to to endorse and support him
1: and we're excited to have ed lazier uh on the phone with us now uh ed smith you want to, do you want to do the two eds are better than one introduction <laughs> sure.
2: two eds are better than one dave and chris you need to change your names just for the day but uh anyway i'm very happy to um have ed lazier on the uh, call with us uh i've known ed for several years and ed uh is a longtime D.C. resident. I don't know if people know this, but he's been here since the 80s. And he was the uh, director of the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute for a number of years, which sounds like, ah, who who cares about the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute? It's a horrible, well, I wouldn't say it's a horrible name, but uh, I don't want to insult you, Ed. But, uh, it's not the best name. <laughs> it was one of the uh, best partnerships that I think I've had with uh, my role as D.C. Uh, Ed has been an advocate, for homeless, uh, early childhood education, healthcare issues, you name it, you name the labor issue, Ed has been a supporter. And the great thing about Ed is he does know the budget. And Ed, I, I would say Dave mentioned that he knows it better than many of us lay people in labor. I would also go further and say, Ed, you know it more than probably 90% of the people over at the D.C. Council, including some of the experts. So we are really happy to have you here. And D.C. A proudly endorsed you. I know our national union proudly endorsed you. And, of course, the Metro Labor Council proudly endorsed you. Ed, it's good to have you
4: here. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. Uh, not that many times I get to say thank you, Ed, and I'm actually talking to somebody else. I <laughs> appreciate that. Well, I, I really appreciate it. I don't know if I should just go in and say a few words, but I really appreciate you having me on the show. And I really love your introduction, particularly your focus on the word partnership, because we all know when you're in a movement, particularly like a labor movement, it is partnerships that get things done. And it's when we all work together that we're able to fight for worker justice or health justice or economic justice more generally or racial justice. And it's been a, truly a blessing for me for the last 20 years to run the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute. And use my for the budget to actually actually fight for better better working conditions for D.C. residents and better access to affordable housing and health care. And it's because I I do see the budget as a moral document that the choices we make in the budget can change lives, the changes we make in the budget can save lives. And I just think about the issue that you and I worked on, Ed, at uh, United Medical Center, that the city shamelessly has wiped its, you know, washed its hands of the only hospital east of the Anacostia River actually cut its funding deeply, knowing that that would hurt access to high quality care and potentially put the lives of residents living in that community at risk. And I was proud to stand with you at UMC to fight for that money to come back. And I look forward to partnering with labor um, November 3rd and then uh, after that to fight for justice, particularly in the middle of this pandemic. uh,
1: uh, let me just uh the ground rose a little bit. No, uh, you are listening to your rights of work, Chris Garlock and Ed Smith. Our our guest is Ed Lazier, who's running for DC City Council. Also uh David Stephen, the political director at the Metro Washington Council. Uh Ed, this is a call and show we'll be taking some calls, but I wanted to ask you, just going back to uh you know what Ed talked Ed Smith talked about. We have too many damn Eds. We just could call everybody Ed. Um but you know, you, you come out of, you know, uh, uh you know, looking at policy, deeply, deeply versed in policy, um, and then going over into politics, and and I'm just, I'm just curious about what made you decide uh, to, you know, because you, you know, you were the guy, you know, and, and 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 fiscal, you know, FPI, you know, really established a tremendous track record and and you know, rec- you know, credibility on these issues. You could have ridden that right to retirement. Uh, I'm sure you weren't pulling in you know, big bucks or anything like that. But I mean, I'm just saying you really had carved out a significant niche there. Why would you leave there to go into
4: politics? God help you. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I ask myself that question every day. No, <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I would start by saying uh, one of the things I've loved about my job is that it actually has combined – uh politics not as a politician but politics and advocacy like being able to take meaningful research and understanding the city's budget and then partner in coalition with labor unions and others push back against policymakers. that's been the the success so one thing i like to say is that i've been counting to seven uh in dc for 20 years and seven is an important number in in the city because we have 13 members of the dc council so any victory that we all care about, any victory that I take credit for required me, not only to partner with you all, but to partner with members of the council, make those compromises, put the pressure on to get to seven votes. And I'm running for office because I'm, I'm frustrated as an advocate, as I'm sure you are as well, that things that should be easy, things that should be easy on the on the council in a progressive city are hard. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, we had to fight back against third-party debt collectors who wanted to garnish wages of people once they started making $200 a week. And you would think that's a no-brainer to say, we're not going to let you garnish wages of someone who's only making $200 a week. But we had a fight. And it was a long fight. And we won. But I'm running to be a strong ally. You all know, you know, Ed and Chris and David and anyone listening, what it means to have an ally on the council a solid vote that you can count on. Oh, when this issue comes up, we're going to be good. We don't need to worry about this council member. And you also know what it's like to have someone who's on the fence or your opponent and how frustrating that is. It's like, Oh, do we have them? I don't know. Well, with me, you're not going to ever have any question. You are going to know that when you're counting votes, when you're counting seven, that I will be a reliable vote for justice and for workers. Uh, and that's why I'm running for you all give you to give up the advocacy community, a safer, stronger, progressive vote on the council. I want to give uh, David a question because
1: Ed, I know your time is limited, so David, the floor is yours.
0: Um, well, Ed,
3: you, we're hearing a lot about how, um, you, with, with the, um, the the pandemic, how um, it, it is affecting the ability to collectively bargain and talk about um, um, salaries or, or, or wages going into the future. What are your ideas on how we're going to be able to balance those two things about if we have a budget shortfall uh, and and continued negotiations for the next two or three years?
4: It's a great question, uh, and you know we all know that one of the outcomes of this pandemic was that the uh, DC government froze wages for all of its employees for four years, so really putting the back uh, the burden of the pandemic very very heavily on workers who. At the same time, we're being asked to double down in the way that they work in support of D.C. residents in the middle of the pandemic. And obviously that is unfair on both ends. Um, You know, just in general, I think we need to use this moment to say that we're gonna become stronger on the other end of this pandemic if we invest in people now. If we shortchange our workers, they're going to leave. If we shortchange our workers, we're not gonna have a productive workforce. So if we want to keep D.C. government strong, we just have to invest in people in all sorts of different ways. And we just have to, therefore, find the money to do it. Uh, and in my opinion, we have barely scratched the surface in the ways that we've looked for money. We haven't closed hardly any corporate tax loopholes in this in this pandemic. Uh, we've barely used the city's reserves, even though it's raining harder than we've ever seen before. We're still sitting on over a billion dollars in our rainy day fund. And we haven't asked our wealthiest residents, many of them are doing fine, even better. This recession is widening income inequality because the, the wealthiest, doing fine the stock market is fine we haven't asked those millionaires to do anything to contribute to to supporting dc residents or workers so we i would we should raise taxes on our wealthiest residents we should close loopholes so that we can protect people i love it i
1: love it hey uh, ed before you go get a quick question for a caller caller you are on your rights at work what's your question for ed lazier
0: hello yep you're on Go ahead. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, the, the question I have is what, what happens uh, to the retirees from your, from your union locals? You know, when they, when they retire from the organization, they still uh, – uh, are they able to continue to pay dues and everything to the union and be represented? Because look at that – think about that energy. Uh, it's a lot go, that goes on with a retired person and their benefits, and if the unions and the locals have an extension of contact tracing and keep up with retirees, that's a second force. Good
1: See, that's question. That's a second
0: force of nature. For example, yep. right now uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a, mem- a retired member of American Federation of Government Employees, AFGE, but I'm having a problem with finding out uh, any changes in my retirement because HR, human resources, has been contracted out. And we don't even know where they are, what they're doing, because they say, well, everybody's working from home. Yeah, but when you call a number, you get a you get a mailbox that's full and nobody's answering the phone. See what I'm saying?
1: I do, I do. Caller, hold on for one second, uh, because that's actually a question more for Ed Smith. Uh, but Ed Lazier, uh first of all, I just wanted to follow up on, on your point on on uh, first of all, I'm I'm all for tax on so rich, let's let's go for it. But more on your general point uh, which I think is incredibly important, um, which is looking, you know, asking folks, you know, and looking around for some other sources and not the first, you know, dumping it onto workers, the first instinctive reaction. So the fact that, I think the fact that you're so deeply versed in, in knowing how to, uh, I mean, let's let's be clear, you know how to count way higher than seven. <laughs> uh, but looking around for some other sources, um, that is, thats that's going to be really critical. So any last thoughts before you go?
4: No, I no, I just, right.
1: Let's watch the uh, no, speakers. No. like we turn the speakers down,
4: there we go. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, no, I guess no, I would they, just say, oh, I'm, no, no, I'm no, still echoing. Let me turn my mind, mind. back. No, I don't think someone who cares. Care the, budget budget cares. Budget the budget is there, the money care. is there. You if policymakers just don't really care about justice, then they'll let the budget just float by with making minor changes. You really need someone who cares. And that's that's what I'm trying to do. So, I hope hope people will check out my campaign campaign if they haven't yet, edfordc.com, and you get get to vote for two on the ballot. Don't forget that. Um, And the
1: Lord Lord, works to your next uh, next council member. Ed Lazier, thank you so much. Best of luck and stay in touch. All right, brother? Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you, Ed. Take care. Now, Ed Smith, uh, let's go back to our caller, because I think our caller has asked a really good question uh, about what happens with retirees. So I'm going to throw that to you as our in-house expert.
2: Sure. And caller, thank you for your patience. I just wanted to make one comment uh, about Ed's point about the budget is a moral budget. It Mm -hmm. it really Mm -hmm. money just doesn't. It, it, it isn't about wonkism it's that's real dollars that go to real people yep and uh, i think with ed on the council and he's got a lot of people that he's fighting against 24 people on that ballot i believe but him on the council is going to definitely be a support for the working uh, man and woman so if you have not voted yet um put circle in his name uh he's definitely a candidate that in my opinion, is probably the best candidate I've seen in in my 20, almost 30 years here. So, caller, um, great question. Um, Yeah, uh, as the head of the D.C. Nurses Association, we definitely rely on our retirees for activism. Um, So I'll get to your question about uh, uh, benefits and how you kind of deal with that in a second. But your point about retirees can be a great source of activism within the union. Often retirees have time to take and and volunteer on projects. Uh, I'll give a good example. One of our retirees, she retired in 2014. She was a longstanding leader uh, within our union. And since she's retired, she still sits on our board of directors. She has uh, worked on education programs. She has assisted in training new leaders at her former institution. So retirees are an amazing source the other thing they can do is they can go to city council meetings uh more often than nurses who work all the time so your question about retiree benefits um uh, i don't know to the extent you've been able to work with afge to try to see what changes there are i'm very sorry to hear that the district has contracted it out and, and and um and you're getting uh voicemail uh uh you know full boxes. So a couple of things to encourage you is definitely to talk to your rep at AFGE and also put something in writing, even if it's a text um, or an email, because once you put something in writing, that kind of, there's an obligation there and you're still paying dues to that organization and it's a great organization. um, And so they need to make sure that they represent you. And if you have any email contacts with the uh, the HR or the or the company that's handling the, the um, benefits, you should definitely put something in writing so you've got a record that you're asking questions. And once you build a record, then you start having a legal they have a legal obligation to to um, answer your questions. So I, I'm not sure if that fully answers it. I mean, I, I wish I was the person in HR that could say, here's your changes. But that's not what I do for a living call
1: Thank you. I appreciate you. You're quite welcome. Thanks for calling in. Great call. Thanks so much. Vote. Vote, yes. vote, 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 vote. vote. Uh, let me get uh, David Stephen uh, uh, back in. And by the way, David, you know, uh, we'd asked you in specifically to to participate in the conversation with Ed Lazier, but uh, feel free to mm-hmm. hang around for our next segment, uh, which you may also find fascinating. But I just wanted to, to toss the ball to you because uh, putting on, you know, your hat back when you were working with uh, 689, the transit workers, uh as i recall and correct me if i'm wrong but it feels to me like uh you, you all had a pretty active retirees uh program over there i just wanted to get your thoughts uh you know in response to the caller's question about you know, retirees and activism and so forth
3: well I, I think that in a lot of ways retirees can be the lifeblood of a union at, at 689 uh retirees are are are, are active and have just as much weight in the organization as those employees who, who, are, um, who are still working. Uh, but retirees have the luxury of having more time. Mm-hmm. And so for that reason, they can be more active when it comes to uh, the, the, the political and organizing and all those other things that people that are working 8, 10, 12 hours a day may not have the luxury of being able to dedicate themselves to. So retirees are very, very important. Uh, in my opinion, when it comes to labor activism, because they have the ability to do more and do it for longer.
1: And, and I would just close out this uh, segment, which uh, we, on Tuesday, we showed a film. It was not the film we were supposed to show, but there was an issue. And so we wound up uh, having a viewer's choice and they chose a film about Maggie Kuhn, who you may remember was the founder of the Grey Panthers. And I'll be honest, I did not know. I mean, I knew who she was. I knew she found the Grey Panthers. I did not realize... Maggie Kuhn ended found up founding the Grey Panthers because uh, she had a, a very good career um, and i 'm forgetting what she did, but she had a just a you know, regular career and uh she, you know she she was forced to retire at sixty five this is back and i have completely forgotten this, and Ed Smith you probably remember this, but uh, there used to be such a thing as forced retirement at a certain age. Um this would have been back I want to say in the early 70s uh that she that she that this happened to her. She was forced to retire. She was a very vibrant woman. I mean there's footage of her in her 80s and 90s and I tell you what, I mean she was vibrant then so I can certainly imagine when she was forced to retire in her in her early 60s and she was honestly she was upset. She was upset that she was being forced at a time when she felt she still had a lot to contribute. Uh, to retire and step back and, and go play shuffleboard, you know, on the cruise ship. And she was, you know, that was, you know, and look, and, 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 and those who want to do that, more power to you. I'm not saying, you know, nothing wrong with playing shuffleboard or, or, or whatever, you know. But she had a lot more to contribute. And so she, uh, you know, she founded the Grey Panthers, uh, which did things like fight. One of the first things they did was fight against a forced retirement. People should be able to decide when they want to retire, how they want to retire and stuff like that, you know, Uh fought on Medicaid. So it was really I, I was thinking about the issue that the caller raises, which is because of showing that film and uh realizing that, you know, for a lot of seniors, you know, there's a whole lot more that they still want to do. So. uh You are listening to Your Rights at Worth, Chris Garlock and Ed Smith with you. We have David Stephen, the political director at the Metro Council, sitting in with us this hour, Uh, and I'm very pleased to report that the doctor... The doctor is in the house and uh, that is Dr. Jamie Woodcock. He's a senior lecturer at the, uh, lecturer that is at the Open University. He's a researcher. He's based in London where I think we're reaching him. He's written a book called Marks as in Carl at the arcade, as in, uh, you know, gaming arcades. And we have him on the line with us now. Jamie or or is it doctor? Uh,
5: Dr. Jamie? (laughs) Jamie would be fine. Yeah. Thank you. A real pleasure to be on the show.
1: So Marx at the arcade. Uh, how do you put Karl Marx and gaming arcades together? It's I can it's only
2: visualized Karl Marx playing Pac-Man.
5: <laughs> He'd be really good. Yeah, I mean, I was I was going to make a joke and say, you know, in the later volumes of Capital, when when Marx gets into writing about video games, but I mean, obviously, Marx <laughs> Mark says nothing about video games um, <laughs> because you know, for for various reasons, um, but. I mean, the book, the book is a, uh, an attempt to make sense of, of video games by, by using Marx. Um, but it's also an attempt to try and make sense of, uh, what Marxism and what labor looks like today by looking at video games. Um, and, you know, some listeners might know, but there is actually a game that Marx appears in, um, as a, as a kind of side character. And what's interesting, and this is the kind of jump-off point for the book, is in in this game, which is set in uh, in Victorian England, you, you meet Marx, um, and he asks you, you, you play as a, a an assassin from a kind of famous uh, series of video games about assassins, and he asks you to go and steal some factory reports um, so that Marx can figure out a bit more about what's happening uh, in London at the time. Now, anyone who knows a bit about how Marx did that, he... He, he read factory reports. He didn't have anyone to steal them, but it's to kind of think of this idea of like, what would factory reports look like today? You know, what are the the places we would look at? And so the book is really an attempt to, to look into some of that today.
1: Uh, it's another question. And then I'll, I'll uh, bring Ed in on this. Uh, Ed Smith, my co-host here. Um, and I want to sort of bring in also the. I mean, you have this whole thing that you're talking about 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 how video games should be front and center, and how we think about cultural production, uh, even for folks that don't play them. And I, I, a lot of my friends uh, are, are gamers, and so it is this whole you know world that's really interesting. But I want to sort of look at the 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 worker world, you know, where they're employing That you really look at. That's that I think is even more. Uh, interesting and and perhaps not is I think if if you're not in that world you're you're completely unaware of that and I'd love you to
5: talk a little bit about about that in your research and what you found. yeah so the the book kind of began uh, quite a few years ago um when i was I was working I ended up on a research project with somebody who who makes video games um, and in the way that you always do, you end up talking a bit about you know what work they do what the conditions were like and I remember talking to him and thinking wow that's not that's not the conditions that I thought video games would be made under you know really long hours um, really precarious working relationships all of these kinds of things and so in one of these ways where like I'm really pleased that I was totally wrong um, at the time I wrote an article with some of the stuff that he told me about saying there are loads of issues that people could organize around in the video games industry um, but they're not there yet. Uh, there are loads of barriers to, to having labor organizing in the video games industry, but they, there were things people could organize around. And then a couple of years later, uh, there was a wave of organizing in the video games industry. Um, so it started about two years ago. Um, and when that started, you know, as, as a Marxist, as somebody who's involved in, in worker organizing, that's when I kind of thought the idea of taking, taking this book forward. Was not only to, as you say, talk about a critical analysis of video games and the play and so on, but that there was a need to have a kind of critical analysis about the conditions of work, to really kind of dig under the under the surface a little bit. Um, and so the book kind of is also a bit of a story of that worker organizing, um, because we helped video game workers in the UK to form a trade union branch. So part of that is in the is in the book too. That kind of story of worker organizing
1: that's uh game workers unite i think right
5: that's right and in in the uk they're part of uh a new union called the independent workers union of great britain so they organize alongside cleaners security guards uh uber drivers kind of lots of precarious precarious workers here in the uk
1: so what are the issues that that I mean, I can imagine that those kind of workers in this country, and and honestly, I've not heard of them trying to organize, and you you would probably be more familiar uh, than I would, but I can imagine that at least in this country, uh, they would be considered... uh, Ed helped me out. I think it probably the same classification as Uber drivers over that, that they that maybe don't necessarily, it's probably free freelance, quote unquote freelance or contract work. Yeah. That's, uh, uh, and that's actually, uh,
2: hopefully we can talk about that because that would be a major barrier in, in the U S that might not be the same legal barrier in England. Um, and I don't know if uh, Jamie, you have any insight on that.
5: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, I think in a lot of these new industries, I think there are a mix of of employment statuses. Um, so there are certainly some video games companies where people work on with employment contracts uh, in big studios. Uh, I mean, there are studios in London, much like there would be in, in New York or, or LA or elsewhere, that are thousands of people in the studio, mm-hmm. you know, big workplaces where some people have worked there a while, there are kind of longer relationships. But then there are also there's definitely a lot of subcontracting, um, a lot of freelance contracts, uh, a lot of, you know, what we would call in the U.K. bogus self-employment. Uh, you know, <laughs> wait, where, wait, 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 wait. wait. That. Is that a technical term, Jamie? You're That's bogus. a technical term. Yeah, that, we'll, we'll go with that as a technical term. Basically we will where definitely
2: borrow that.
5: You, you should use it. I think, it, you know, it, there are plenty of workers in the U.S. that it applies to. Um Basically, this is where self-employment is just used as a way not to pay benefits, not to to respect employment rights and so on. Um, so there are definitely examples of that. Um, but, you know, I think one of the main things is there isn't a history of organizing in this industry. Um, and one of the points I try to make in the book is that it's not a new industry anymore. You know, we think of it as new because, you know, compared to the print industry or, or, or lots of public sector kinds of jobs, it's relatively new, but it's been around a long time now. Um, so a lot of these organizations are established and I think people have started to, they've reached that point where, you know, they've looked to organizing in other industries and realized it's something that they, they want to have a go at doing too. So doctor, uh, a couple of things.
2: One, um, you know, I have a friend of mine who I went to high school with and, uh, and was gut in the gaming industry and made, I guess he made millions. But, you know, I, I think I know him fairly well, but I have no idea how he made the millions, what he did. So I guess the industry, you know, there's probably thousands of different types of jobs, um, but maybe you could kind of talk about some of the jobs that uh, people do and, 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 and how they're exploited. And then as a follow-up, it might be changing the uh, changing the uh, direction a little bit, but uh, I've heard something about crunch time and 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 what is this about and why it's a concern for workers
5: yeah, so I, I guess the first thing to say is there' have definitely been lots of stories in the video games industry of someone who makes a video game in their bedroom they you know they hit the the big time, they make a huge amount of money, they become famous and and so on that's definitely a big draw for lots of people into the industry. You know, this idea that you don't have to work a nine to five, you can do something you love. Uh, and in many industries where that's, you know, where there's that kind of draw, people are taken advantage of in, in lots of ways. Um, so it's definitely true that some people are paid well in the industry. Um, if you're senior or you have some kind of stake in the company and so on, you can be paid quite well. But then there are lots of people who, who are not well paid. Um, people who could be paid much better if they took their skills to another industry. Um, so they kind of, you know, they take a pay cut to work in, in an industry that they're passionate about, uh, while someone else creams off, you know, huge amounts of value from their, from their work. And the kinds of things that people are doing is the coding that you might expect, but then the art assets. So, you know, having artists working in the industry, people doing sound and so on, voice acting. So a whole range of creative jobs. Uh, and there was actually a couple of years ago, a strike of of voice actors uh, because they'd been organized when they were doing voice acting in, in film. So there was a kind of movement over of unionism oh, from, from another another sector. But then there were lots of things like, you know, we organize in the UK with a lot of people who, who do the testing of video games. Uh, and this is minimum wage work. Um, it can be quite stressful. You know, it can be uh, it's often not valued in the industry. And lots of people do this work because they want to break into the industry. Um, so there's definitely a much broader picture than just, you know, the kind of coding savant that that, that makes the game and, and, and makes a whole lot of money. This is a kind of a well-established capitalist enterprise, you know, that is churning, churning games out. And part of that churn is about uh, working time. So lots of games work to very close release schedules because, you know, they're having marketing budgets that rival film. And so you really want to have a game come out at the right time, you know, just before the holidays or whenever it is. And so there's an expectation of what's called crunch time in lots of uh, of companies where you'll just keep working to make sure you make that deadline. Um, and we've heard stories of people working 90, 100-hour weeks in the run-up My to release. God. And that's, you know, these are, this is like sleeping in the studio, you know, you've been bought pizza or whatever, but you're, you're working these huge, intense periods of overwork. And to Marx, this would make a lot of sense. You know, this is, you know, you're paying people the same amount of time and you're getting more labor out of them. And it's so systemic that it's not an accident, you know, that, so, oh, you know, they ran out of time on that project is this becomes factored in to the cycle is they know that they can squeeze more more labor time out because it's become a practice. And that's like definitely an issue that people are organizing around. Um, and you know, we've spoken to many people who, you know, struggle with family life because of this and so on. But I think the other issue that's really important to bring attention to is questions around oppression. Um so how how women and how minorities are treated in the industry. Um and there are lots of stories of people coming forward talking about ways they've been treated and so on. Um, that have, have mobilized people to get to get into unions and to get organized.
1: You're listening to Your Rights at Work with Chris Garlick and Ed Smith. We're talking to Dr. Jamie Woodcock. He is the author of Marx at the Arcade. Jamie, I, I do want to sort of continue with with the broader picture here, with talking about, um, and I think it is fascinating. Uh, and, and I do it. You know, I joked about it at the beginning, but it totally, totally makes sense uh, to bring these two things together because one of the things that I think is that, you know, when he was looking at work and and he and and really Engels was spending time, you know, in the factories, looking at the conditions of work. Well, you can look at people working in factories. And back then, of course, you had kids working in factories and it's hard work and, you know, bones are being broken. And I mean, you can simply see how hard the work is. You know, you pop into, you know, uh, you know, one of these studios and you see people and a lot of these folks, as you point out, they're gamers. They love gaming. That's why they're in it. And they probably just to the casual observer look like they're having fun. Maybe not if they've got pizza boxes piled up and they're bleary eyed. But, you know, it reminds me of, you know, people who complain about baseball players making all, you know, all this money because they're playing a game that, you know, it's a game. Right. <laughs> uh, so I'm thinking, you know, literally here you are in a gaming industry. Right. And so can you talk a bit uh, about, you know, that, you know, this, this this sort of almost it seems like a contradiction, right? This idea of paying people to play games.
5: Yeah. And I, I mean, I think a lot of the the history of the games industry is one of, you know, people make games because they want to they want to do something different. You know, they want to have fun. You know, using a, a computer that should be being used for something else. So there's this kind of history of hacking in the video games industry of people finding ways to avoid work. Um, <laughs> you know, this is a kind of a theme that runs through it. And, you know, even my, my dad is a computer scientist. And when I was writing the book, he told me about a game that him and his friends had made when they were students, when they were meant to be writing, uh, calendars for using machinery in factories. Instead, they found a way to play a, a game of golf. So there's this kind of, there's history's like, there's a history of anti-work. And I think a lot of companies play on that. You know, come here, you can, you know, you can, you don't have to work a nine to five. You don't have to wear a suit. You know, you can kind of enjoy, enjoy the work. And that then has a flip side of, well, if you're not enjoying it, you're not passionate about it. Of course you'll put in those extra, those extra hours to make sure the game looks good and so on um and so i think it's it's flipped round on people as a pressure um to to make them work harder and i think it's difficult you know i think people have had to find a way to to have their voice in the industry to make it sound like they're not anti games you know to to be able to stand up for themselves
2: so i i just want to jump in with a quick comment i wonder if they said well yeah you don't have to work 9 to 5 and then added the caveat you'll have to work nine to midnight how many people would jump at the chance to uh be employed by the uh the particular uh gaming uh, uh employer
5: <laughs> yeah definitely and I think you know this is the this is the problem is people are not you know they don't think that that's gonna happen you know they think the that's not the the bargain at the beginning is it it's the bargain at the end when you're already already committed to it
1: mm-hmm one of the things I know that uh, the the gaming workers union has has uh, advocated for has to do with diversity uh, diversity for women diversity for uh, minorities uh, which I know there's been uh, you know gamergate here in the in the states can you talk about that issue
5: yeah so I think this is one of the things that I I think has the kind of broader significance from just the workplace to games as a form of culture um, is anyone who who's played online video games in any real way has come across no doubt some kind of horribly toxic community (laughs) um where people treat each other really badly uh, and often you know this is is focused around around race gender sexuality you know in ways that make uh make many people feel very uncomfortable in video games and have also been weaponized so has helped fuel the, the rise of the, the far right and the alt right in various ways and has fed into, you know, a lot of, uh, of dangerous things moving over into the streets and not just into, into online culture. And so I think what's interesting about the game worker organizing is a lot of people saying, you know, I work on this game. You know, I am a minority. You know, I don't want to make decisions that lead to having a toxic community like this. And I think worker power in the video games industry, because these games are made by people, you know, these games are made by people from diverse backgrounds, is if workers have more of a say over the kind of games they're making, they can make an intervention into that culture that will make those communities, you know, better places to be, uh, more inclusive, uh, and so on, which kind of offers us a way out of the swamp of the online community that I think is, is really hard to imagine otherwise.
1: Absolutely. Hey, and, and here's another thing uh, this sort of harkens back to something we were just talking about, which is the part of the appeal that you were talking about working at a video game company is being involved in the creative process. And they can be incredibly creative, but you have an example of workers at a large company and their job is to build a virtual street lamp. And you you use this to talk about Marx's idea of worker alienation. And I, I think that's a really and I often think about it, you know, that when I go when I go shopping and I see the supermarket workers. Right. And and I always stop to talk to them. And it's occurring to me that maybe part of the reason I do that is because of this idea of worker alienation that that because I, th- I put myself in their shoes and I think, man, if I was just swiping groceries all day long. You know, and so, you know, when I stop to talk to them and, you know, kind of it makes it more human and interactive. But maybe I don't know. What do you you know? I, I do you just talk a little bit about that.
5: Yeah, I mean, as somebody who, who worked in a supermarket when I was younger, you know, those conversations are the things that break you out of the monotony. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I think in these very, very big video games companies, um, there is a specialization of labour to allow these games to be churned out at a regular pace uh, to hit, you know, to hit creating value for shareholders, you know, rather than for creating a, an art form. And, you know, one of these examples is a guy who who just put bird, bird shit on the roof. You know, this was his job. You know, I spoke to somebody else whose job was to do the fabric on capes. So he did the fabric, but he never got to design the character, just a little bit. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of this is it allows for games that are so vast and huge that, you know, we couldn't imagine creating otherwise. Um, but on the flip side... It means that the people who are making the decisions about what goes into those games are often not the people who are actually making them. So, you know, why do we have game after game that has a white male protagonist, you know, that has a military theme, you know, these games are churned out like over and over and over again. And I think that's kind of what's interesting about the smaller game, the kind of renaissance of smaller games is the, some of the expression and, and different ways of doing things. There's a, a creativity you can see unleashed when people get a bit more of a say over what they do at work. And that's, I think the fascinating thing about games reactionary on one side, but then this creativity that you can see on the other side, you know, there's this kind of tension that runs through games um, much like, you know, art and culture more generally.
1: Absolutely.
2: Jamie, I was
5: this- just thinking that
2: just like, just like Hollywood in the eighties, it was about killing the Russians. And then now after, uh, 9-11 it's about killing the uh the uh, uh islam uh, islam uh, people yeah
5: yeah and you get this in games too you know who's yep. the main enemy in games shifts depending on and American they're at right? the time yeah they're, they're exactly.
1: one or two-dimensional exactly uh, this has been a fascinating conversation the book is uh Mark's at the arcade. We can recommend it. Jamie, it has been an absolute delight to have you on. We're definitely going to have you back on. We have, uh, I think now that I'm thinking about it, we talk about worker alienation all the time on this show, as you can imagine. So uh, we will keep your number handy. Really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show.
5: A pleasure. Thanks so much for
1: having me on. Absolutely. Dr. Jamie Woodcock. He's a senior lecturer at the Open University. He's a researcher based in London. He's got several books: uh, "The Gig Economy" and "Marks at the Arcade," and also "Working the Phone." So, plenty to talk about him. Ed Smith. Uh, it's something I think that you can uh, you can really uh, relate to. I was thinking about this again, uh, just as we as we head out here. Uh, we'll we'll talk more about it next time. Uh, this has been Your Rights at Work, Chris Garlock, Ed Smith. Everybody stay safe out there. Take we'll care, safe. everybody.
6: Peace. Know WPFW Washington and WBAI New York, I'm Askiya Muhammad. Here are some headlines. President Donald Trump said today he would skip next week's debate with Democratic nominee Joe Biden after organizers said it would be held virtually after Trump got COVID 19, further disrupting the president's efforts to shift focus away from the virus that has killed more than 210,000 Americans this year. Biden's campaign asked for the town hall style debate to instead be moved back a week so the president is not able to evade accountability. End quote. The Nonpartisan Commission on Presidential Debates made the decision to shift to a virtual debate unilaterally. Some staffers associated with producing the debate raised concerns after Trump tested positive for the virus following his first face-off with Biden last week. Vice President Mike Pence and Senator Kamala Harris met in Salt Lake City, Utah last night for the only vice presidential debate of the campaign season. The two sparred on climate change, the Supreme Court, the economy, institutional racism, and other issues. The debate began with Harris slamming the Trump administration's handling of the COVID-19.
5: The American people have witnessed
1: what is the greatest failure of any presidential administration in the history of our country. And here are the facts. 210,000 dead people in our country in just the last several months Over 7 million people who have contracted this disease. One in five businesses closed. We're looking at frontline workers who have been treated like sacrificial workers. We are looking at over
5: 30 million
1: people who in the last several months had to file for unemployment.
6: The two candidates were spaced 12 feet apart and separated by two plexiglass shields after Pence joined multiple events At the White House recently, unmasked, attended by Trump and at least seven other people who have since tested positive for coronavirus. Pence's spokesperson says the vice president has repeatedly tested negative, though he is still within the 14-day incubation period of the coronavirus. Pence's left eye appeared red and weeping, prompting many doctors to question whether he has virtual conjunctivitis, an uncommon symptom of COVID-19. Speaker Nancy Pelosi said today that Democrats will hold an event on Friday to discuss the 25th Amendment amid concerns over Trump's coronavirus diagnosis. When pressed for clarification, Pelosi declined to provide an explicit answer, but hinted the discussion was tied to what she said was a lack of transparency from the White House over Trump's health. The 25th Amendment lays out the line of succession should a president die or become incapacitated. It also provides for a situation in which the vice president and a majority of the cabinet can declare that the president is not fit to carry out his duties. Thirty-four White House staffers and contacts have been infected with COVID-19 in recent days, according to an internal Federal Emergency Management Agency memo, obtained by ABC News. The leak of the FEMA memo came as multiple reports said White House staffers are afraid to return to work while Trump is still sick and contagious. Another 1.3 million workers applied for unemployment benefits last week. 840,000 applied for regular state benefits, while another 464,000 applied for Federal Pandemic Unemployment Assistance. That PUA expansion provides up to 39 weeks of unemployment insurance to workers not eligible for regular state benefits, but is set to expire at the end of the year. Many workers are exhausting regular state benefits, which only provide 26 weeks of insurance.